Hello, this is Dr. Thone, and I'm here with Dr. Yomi, and we're going to talk about the new injectable for HIV PrEP. So, Dr. Yomi, how are you today? I'm doing good. Hi, Dr. Thone. It's good to be here again. Thanks. So, what is HIV PrEP? Um, in simple language, HIV PrEP is pre-exposure prophylaxis. And it consists of taking medication when a patient has a high risk of contracting HIV to help lower their chances of getting infected. So who's at risk for HIV? Um, Individuals who may benefit from PrEP include but are not limited to males who have sex with male. And that's um, MSM, that's the short form. Two people with multiple sexual partners with no consistent use of condoms. Three, people who have been diagnosed with an STD in the past six months. Four, IV drug users who share needles, syringes, or other injectable equipment. These are people who are at risk for um, having it, contracting HIV. What is the history of HIV PrEP? Um, in 2012, the first medication for HIV PrEP um, Truvada was approved, and I'm sure a lot of us have seen this on commercials on TV. Now, this was a once-daily oral prescription drug, which was quite effective. Seven years later, in 2019, another medication was approved again for HIV PrEP, and this was Discovy. This also was a daily medication, which was taken by mouth. Um, today, we're going to introduce you to the newest addition to the family, and that's Apritude. Apritude was approved by the FDA on December of 2021, and it is an extended release injectable for HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis for at-risk individuals, adults and ad- adolescents, who weigh at least 35 kilograms. So what's the mechanism of action of Apritude? So the way Apritude works is that um, it binds to the HIV integrase active sites and blocks the strand transfer step of retroviral DNA integration. So in short word terms, it is a long-acting integrase inhibitor. So Descovy and Truvada are given orally. How is this given? Apritude uh, comes as a 600 milligram injectable and, and it's just about three meals. And patients receive two initiation injections one month apart. So they receive the first um, 600 milligrams today. A month later, they receive the second 600 milligrams. Thereafter, patients receive the injection every two months. Now, um, some patients may not tolerate this medication. So um, rather than start it immediately in all patients, um, some can take the oral formulation for four weeks to assess how well they can tolerate the medication before beginning the injection. What did the safety and efficacy trials show for Apritude? The safety and efficacy of Apritude in reducing the risk of contracting HIV was evaluated in two randomized double-blind trials comparing Apritude and Truvada. And in trial one, participants who took Apritude had a 69% less risk of contracting HIV 
compared to Truvada. While in trial 2, participants who took Apritude had a 90% less risk of contracting HIV compared to Truvada, which was pretty good. So it sounds like it works really well. Yes, it does. What are some of the common side effects? Common side effects that have been seen in patients who take Apritude um, are fever, malaise, fatigue, sleep problems, myogias, arthralgias, headaches, rash, red and swollen eyes. Some patients have complaints of edema of the face, lips, mouth and tongue, GI discomfort, hepatotoxicity, and depression. Anything else we should know about Apritude? Yes, there are a few things that are worthy of note when it comes to Apritude. And one of them would be that some drug-resistant HIV variants have been identified in people with undiagnosed HIV prior to beginning the medication. And people who test positive for HIV while on Apritude must transition to a complete HIV treatment regimen as Apritude is not approved for HIV treatment. Are there any requirements to before someone receives Apritude? Yes, of course. There are three things that must be put into consideration before a patient receives Apritude. Number one, patients must be negative for HIV-1. So they get tested and they are negative for HIV-1. It is also very important that while on Apritude, patients must remain negative to continue receiving the medication. And finally, patients must be compliant. It's important they do not miss any injections because this will increase their risk of contracting the virus. So it's, that's very important too. So Dr. Yomi, you've given us so much information. Any last thoughts? Yes. Uh, my last thoughts on this will be that... Um, it is very important that patients are sexually responsible because Apritude does not protect against other sexually transmitted infections. So use other forms of protections such as condoms. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Yomi. We appreciate your uh, time to research this topic for us and to inform us about this very important preventive uh, step. Thank you, Dr. Thorne, for this opportunity. I'm so humbled. Thank you. This is Rio Bravo Q Week, your weekly dose of knowledge brought to you by the Rio Bravo Family Medicine Residency Program from Bakersfield, California. Our program is affiliated with UCLA, and it's sponsored by Clinica Sierra Vista. Let us be your healthcare home. This podcast was created for educational purposes only. Please visit your primary care physician for additional medical advice. Hello, everyone. Today, we will present to you a case to remind you about some principles of cardiopulmonary resuscitation. The term code blue in the United States refers to a situation where a patient is in cardiac arrest, respiratory arrest, unresponsive, or experiencing another medical emergency that requires immediate attention. Code blue is commonly used in hospitals and clinics to call a rapid response team to arrive immediately to evaluate the patient. 
We hope you can benefit from this brief review and feel ready for your next Code Blue. Of course, you will need more than we provide in these few minutes, but we hope it triggers your curiosity to keep learning and practicing. By the way, Code Blue is not standard for medical emergency in the whole world. For example, in the United Kingdom, they call it Code Red, but we hope you like it. So we hijacked Dr. Ariaza for this podcast. So you have me instead. My name is Shanera Durange. I'm an MS3 from Ross University School of Medicine, and I'll be serving as the narrator. My name is Jonaday Holter. I'm also an MS3 from Ross University School of Medicine. My name is Manpreet Singh. I'm an MS3 as well from Ross University as well. So today we have a case to present you, and we're going to be going through that case one by one. So, Mr. D.D. is a 56-year-old man with a past medical history of coronary artery disease, recent MI, diabetes mellitus 2, CHF, and presents today to the clinic for hospital follow-up. He had an MI two weeks ago. He reports when he was at home working in the yard, he suddenly had 8 out of 10 retrosternal chest pain. It felt pressure-like, and it was accompanied with shortness of breath and diaphoresis. The pain radiated to his left arm and the neck and jaw. Uh, now, nitroglycerin was taken by Mr. Didi three times, but without resolution of symptoms. Patient was taken by EMS to Kern Medical ER. In the hospital, there was a 4mm ST elevation on ECG on leads 2, 3, and AVF. Q waves were also seen in anterior leads V4 through V6. Patient was taken to cath lab and stent was placed in the right coronary artery. Echo showed decreased left ventricle wall motion and dilated left ventricle with an ejection fraction of 28%. Mr. DD was discharged after five days in the hospital. He is currently on lisinopril, carvedilol, atorvastatin, aspirin, clopidogrel, metformin, and digoxin. He states he's not compliant with all these medications because he forgets to get refills at times. He also has a 35-pack year history of smoking and drinks 3-4 to 4, 4 ounce beverages every day after work. He states he has used methamphetamine and cocaine intermittently in the past 6 months. Today, he lets the MA know that he is having some chest pain at night, shortness of breath with minimal activity for the last week, and at times he feels his heart is beating too fast. He has a follow-up appointment with cardiology in 2 weeks. The MA tells you that the patient's vitals today are blood pressure 195 over 105, heart rate 108, respiratory rate of 28, and O2 sat of 89% on room air. While you're reviewing the patient's chart, you hear a loud thud come from the room. You rush into the room and find the patient on the ground. The patient is unresponsive and not moving. What is your next action? A. Try to lift the patient off the ground and back onto the chair or bed. B. Give the patient some nitroglycerin sublingually. C. Call and wait for EMS before proceeding. D. Obtain IV access. Or lastly, E. See if the patient is arousable and check pulse and breathing. E would be the correct answer to this question. Because before initiating any type of treatment, first you must assess the patient for alert response and their basic vitals, such as pulse and breathing. 
We do this because we need to know if the cardiopulmonary systems are intact. When they are not intact, regardless of level of medical training, we must start CPR protocol. For this patient, Mr. Didi possibly suffered a tachyarrhythmia, a very common post-MI complication that causes the highest mortality rates. The most common cause of death are V-fib and V-tac. These are the steps we must take in order to start resuscitation of the cardiopulmonary system in any environment before the patient can be taken to a higher level of care. In this situation, Dr. Holter, that's me, and Dr. Singh, that's me, will perform two patient CPR. This is only an introduction of basic life support and advanced cardiac life support. You will need additional training to get the BLS and ACLS certificates. First, assure every First, assure your environment is safe before proceeding to render care. You want to give the best uninterrupted care, and lastly, you don't want to be a patient yourself. I will reach down and check the patient. Sir, sir, are you okay? I'm assessing for reactions from visual or verbal cues given by me. When the patient is unresponsive to verbal and visual cues, I will give a painful stimulus to the patient, such as nail bed pinch or sternal rub. Next, it is necessary to assess the pulse and breathing of the patient. The reason we check if the patient is alert is to assess the neurologic activity. The lack of response to painful stimuli indicates there is no self-protect response. To assess the carotid pulse, you must palpate the carotid artery by placing the index and middle fingers near the upper neck between the sternomastoid and trachea, roughly at the level of the cricoid cartilage. Assess breathing by checking the rise and fall of the chest. Lack of responsiveness, pulse, and breathing indicates that immediate cardiopulmonary resuscitation, or CPR, needs to be initiated. Please call 911 and get an automated external defibrillator. I will call 911 and get an AED. I will place the person on their back and start single-person CPR until Dr. Singh comes back. CPR is performed by placing the patient flat on their back on an even surface. Place the heel of your hand on the center of the person's chest on the mid-sternum, then place the palm of your other hand on top. Press down 5 to 6 centimeters or 2 to 2.5 two inches at a rate of 100 to 120 beats per minute. Compressions should not be interrupted because they serve as an artificial way of contracting the heart and circulating the blood to maintain blood perfusion. For one or two person CPR on an adult, give five cycles of 30 compressions to two breaths. For one person CPR on a child, give five cycles of 30 compressions to two breaths. For two person CPR on a child, give five cycles of 15 compressions to two breaths. Dr. Holter, Continue the compressions and I will give rescue breaths and start to place the AED pads on the patient. Let me know if you get tired. We can switch out and to ensure that we give high quality CPR with adequate depth and rate. The AED comes with a diagram made on the pads to instruct where to place the pads. Once an AED is positioned correctly on the patient's chest, let it detect if a shockable rhythm is present. Shockable rhythms include VFib and VTAC. If there is not a shockable rhythm detected, then continue with CPR until a higher level of care is reached. If a shockable rhythm is detected, the AED will advise the users to step back and verbalize clear in order to ensure that everyone is clear of the patient.
It will then administer a shock to the patient in the range of 120 to 200 joules based on the device manufacturer's recommendation. Dr. Holter, stay clear of the patient. The AED advises shocking the patient. I will press the button and administer the shock now. Stay clear of patient. Deliver shock now. Press the orange button now. Shock delivered. After administration of first shock, ACLS guidelines recommend continuing CPR for two minutes without checking for a pulse, as effective cardiac contractility lags behind the restoration of an organized electrical rhythm. After the next two-minute cycle of CPR, the AED will reanalyze the patient's rhythm to determine if the rhythm is once again shockable. Dr. Singh, continue high-quality CPR while I initiate ACLS protocol. I will get an IV and start epinephrine. I will continue the CPR in the meantime. ACLS starts with again CPR, AED rhythm reading, and shock administration but with a higher level of care, ACLS. You must obtain IV or IO access. Epinephrine is administered every 3-5 to five minutes during the cycle in doses of 1 mg at a time. After each dose of epinephrine and CPR for two minutes, the AED should reassess if the rhythm is shockable, and then continue CPR for another two minutes. At this time, it is recommended to use amiodarone or lidocaine. CPR will continue, but at this time, patient will likely be in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, and EMS will be managing the cycles. The cycles will continue until return of spontaneous circulation is obtained. Myocardial infarction is the most common cause of shock refractory V-fib, along with coronary artery disease. If CPR does not resume spontaneous circulation within 40 to 50 minutes, there is a significantly decreased chance of recovery. Spontaneous circulation may be achieved in patients with refractory V-fib with coronary revascularization. Therefore, in addition to traditional CPR, venoarterial ECMO can be used as an adjunct and can result in much better systemic perfusion. Essentially, this is a technique in which blood is drained from the body and circulated outside through an oxygen and heat exchanger and then reintroduced into the body. This technique can be used if preparing for coronary revascularization. VFib is a great risk in an acute phase after the MI, up to 72 hours after revascularization due to recent ischemia and reperfusion. After the first 72 hours and up to a month following, VFib remains a risk due to continued remodeling of the heart. The newly remodeled tissue can cause interruptions in the normal electrical signaling of the heart, leading to dissociated contractions and subsequent lack of perfusion through the body, which can quickly lead to death within minutes if not recognized and managed immediately with CPR and defibrillation as described. Clinicians should be aware of their patients who would be more susceptible to serious events such as this and be on top of their training about management. This may not be a common occurrence in clinics, but is a very serious event and requires a prompt and appropriate response. Good job. We saved the patient. <laughs> Now we conclude our episode number 98, Apertude and Code Blue. Dr. Yomi concisely explained how to use the new injectable medication for HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis, PREP. Then Manpreet, John, and Shainara presented a case that can actually happen in clinic and anywhere. 
CPR is a life-saving skill that needs to be learned and practiced over and over so we are not taken by surprise. Remember that heart disease continues to be the number one killer in the United States. So, make sure you know where your AED is and be sure to use it when needed. Even without trying, every night, you go to bed being a little wiser. This week, we thank Hector Ariaza, Timi Iyomi, Jennifer Thone, Manpreet Singh, Jean-Aid Alter, and Shainera Garangay. Thanks for listening to Real Bravo Q Week podcast. If you have any feedback, please contact us by email at realbravoqweek at clinicalservista.org or visit our website, realbravofmrp.org backslash qweek. Audio by Suraj Amrutia. See you next week.